All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we are starting a new book of the Bible today. Uh, and the first sermon of every series uh, is sort of an introduction. It's an opportunity for me to set the stage for the rest of the book. Um, and we're going to do that today. Uh, but as we do that, it's going to be a little bit different than uh, some other books because Mark is a little bit different. Um, that is to say, every book of the Bible has its own flavor. Um, they are written by different authors. They're written to uh, varied people. And they're all written to accomplish a, ver- a variety of purposes. And so this is sort of an important aspect of reading your Bible. As you go through your Bible, um, you need to get r- the right feel for what the author is attempting to do. Right? They're not all trying to accomplish the same thing, so we actually need to read them differently. Now, when I preach, uh, this is one of the things that I try to do. Uh, I try to shape the preaching style of any uh, sermon series to the text, which is to say when I do an Old Testament narrative, uh, it's going to be a lot more story. It's going to be a lot more looking at how this piece connects to the larger story or plan of God. When we're in the wisdom literature, which we just were with Proverbs, it's going to end up being more philosophical because that section is actually kind of pointing to some of these bigger philosophical themes. When we do a New Testament epistle, uh, there's going to be more imperatives and kind of direct application because that's how it's written. It's written to basically say, take this gospel and this is how to live this out. Um, If you go into the prophets, uh, they declare God's judgment. Um, That's going to be a slightly heavier tone to it. And so as we go through each of these, um, Andrew and I, uh, we do our best to reflect not only the content of the words, uh, but the overall context that comes with it. And so as we move into a gospel, we need to understand um, sort of why the gospels were written. Why are these in our Bible? What do they exist to do? And to do that, we're going to start with the word itself, gospel. In the simplest terms, the word gospel means good news. Uh, Good meaning it has the ability to improve your life. And news meaning that it's the report of something that has happened. Right. So gospel is a proclamation of an event that changes the world in a positive way. And interestingly, it's not only a Christian term. Uh, At the time of Jesus' coming, the word gospel had been used to describe other noteworthy events, uh, including the birth of Augustus Caesar. Now, of course, not every good news is deemed gospel news. Um, No, it has to be a moment of sort of earth-changing, earth-shattering event, uh, often around the actions of an emperor or a king. And so one of the modern definitions that I had read of, of, of what a gospel is, is simply that gospel is a pronouncement of victory. And I think that's a good definition. Um, It's not just good news. It's the description of an event that leads to a victorious new reality. Now, when we use the term gospel as Christians, we are speaking of a very specific set of details. right? Christians are not just proclaiming general good for the world, um, but the story of how Jesus Christ has secured victory over Satan, sin, and death. Paul lays out the details of this, the the, the news for us, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. 
And so this is the news that we stand on. This is the gospel truth that has changed the world, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared to people showing that he was truly alive. Now, the person who wrote this, Paul, was an evangelist. Uh, He went on missionary journeys all over Asia Minor, teaching this story, these facts, and also planting churches. And if you read through his uh, epistles, you'll see he also started to talk about how this affects our relationships and the church and how we relate to government and all sorts of things, right? And so as he did this, as he went into all these different places, uh, one of the things that he saw is that there were a lot of other ideas of what was gospel, of what were good news, And because there were all of these other gospels, all these other ways to experience victory, Paul continually encourages his people, or God's people, to hold fast, to remember, to stand firm. All of these terms are basically to say, remember, remember the truth, remember the the gospel that I gave to you, because it's very easy to attach the the actions, the, the good works, to other gospels. And as he went around, there were all these other heresies coming up because people did not have a robust and complete understanding of who Jesus was and of the gospel in which they stand. And so as Paul's doing this, as he's going all over and teaching, um, the life of Jesus had been lived. Um, he, he had already died and raised and went back to heaven. Um, but we, the people didn't have the gospel writings that we have today. And so recognizing the need for there to be a complete record of the life of Jesus... Uh, Four men were tasked with writing a proclamation of victory, a record of who Jesus was and what he said and what he did so that people could see and experience this victory firsthand. And so the Gospels were written to aid in the evangelistic work of taking the truth of Jesus to the world by providing an eyewitness account of the life and work of Jesus. And so we don't have a Gospel in our Bible, we have four And each one of them provides us with a slightly different view, narratives that are organized based on the author and what they were trying to accomplish. So let me give you a quick summary of the four Gospels that we have and and what they are purposed to do, right? First one is Matthew. Matthew was Jewish, writing to a Jewish audience, and he really focuses on how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. So he's showing the people of God um, how Jesus is the one who had been promised. And he starts with a genealogy. That's how you can know that he's pointing back. He starts with a genealogy, um, and he just keeps attaching the Old Testament to the New Testament, Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, And so I preached through Matthew back in 2015, 2016, and that's basically what we did. We were constantly jumping back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, because we needed to do some work to kind of understand that Jewish context to understand what it meant that Jesus fulfilled it. Now Luke um, is a Gentile, uh, and he's a very technical author. Uh, He served as a physician for Paul, and many believe he was also Paul's scribe. Uh, His purpose in writing the Gospel of Luke uh, was to give a thorough explanation of Jesus' life and teaching in order to provide certainty for the faith. And we know that this was his goal because he said so uh, in the first few verses of Luke. He says, "...inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so this ordered account is the longest gospel and contains more miracles than any of the others. Um, because basically Luke went around and compiled all this data. He compiled it. He had all these eyewitness accounts, and he had this huge pile of information, and he was like, it's all good. I can't leave any of it out. So Paul, not a great editor. I mean, sorry, Luke, not a great editor. Um, Now, this stands in stark contrast then to the Gospel of John, um, which is the fourth of the Gospels. Uh, John is not what's called a synoptic gospel, um, like the other three, meaning he doesn't try to provide a synopsis of Jesus' life. Uh, Instead, what he writes to us is this layered poetic argument for the divinity of Jesus. And I say it stands in contrast to Luke because John even says in his own gospel, I left stuff out. I left a lot of stuff out. This is what he says in John 20. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John says... I have other stuff I could have put in here. But I left it out, not to present something less to you, but because I am organizing this gospel to display the fullness of God in Christ. And if you study John's gospel, it comes across. Uh, It is a very thick, layered gospel. Uh, I preached through this in 2019, and honestly, the hardest thing about preaching John is leaving things out because there is so much there. And as you study it, you're like, oh, this is so interesting. And then there's like rabbit trails and he's like hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. And you're like, oh, this is really, but then you're like, do people care? Like, I only have so much time. And so it's really hard to figure out what do I say? What do I not say? Because there is just so much. It really does though open up your eyes to uh, just the this, this interconnectedness of scripture. Um, Really, that's part of what John is trying to do. He's trying to show us that Jesus is God, but even more, that all Scripture works together to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And that's really what all the Gospels are doing in their own way. Luke doesn't need to make Jewish connections because he knows that Matthew does. John doesn't feel the need to include every story because he knows that Luke does. Jesus is far too complex then to look through a single lens at. And so God has given us these varied views, not only to fill in the gaps of the others, but to work together to accomplish all that God intends. To present a full and complete proclamation of victory. So the question that we're answering today then is where does Mark fit in, right? We looked at the rest. Why Mark? And we start with Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to answer that question. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark refers to this as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now we know in that that Mark is not discounting all that came before in the Old Testament because the next thing he's going to do is actually quote the Old Testament uh, to show how Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy. But when he says beginning, what Mark is getting at here is that Jesus is the source from which all truth and purpose flow. Now, we've been on that the last couple of weeks. That really was kind of one of the major themes of our Advent series, um, that the whole of human history, including the Old Testament, is about Jesus. His life is the beginning of understanding everything else. We looked at that in Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Mark is here to provide for us a starting point from which to understand Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and a real flesh and blood person who lived on this earth. 
Now, the major force or purpose behind Mark's writing is evangelism. Uh, now, there's a debate as to who the author of uh, Mark is, because basically there's a debate about who the author of every book of the Bible is, um, but I don't really see a good reason to um, believe that it's anyone other than who the early church attributes it to, which is Mark, or John Mark. Um, he was a Christian who, who grew up with a mother who was actively involved in the early church. Um, when Paul flees, uh, or sorry, when Peter flees from uh, prison in Acts 12, the place that he goes after getting out of prison is to uh, John Mark's mother's house. So there's the, the, the belief is that there was a group of Christians who were meeting there regularly. Uh, we then see John Mark join the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Um, and so part of the way through that missionary journey, he leaves to go back to Jerusalem, uh, which leads to a big fight between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants to bring him on a later trip. And Paul is, anyway, so there's a big rift. Um, they all reconcile, and Paul uh, summons Mark later in his ministry, which we see in 2 Timothy 4. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. And we see they've gotten back together, and everything's great. But in the time between, Mark was working with the Apostle Peter. So he's got a relationship with Paul and with Peter, um, acting as a scribe for him while he was in prison. And the title uh, the, that Mark is given in Christian tradition is Mark the Evangelist. Now, I mention all of this not because it matters greatly to the content of the book. The book is very much about Jesus, and who Jesus is does not change based on who Mark is. But what we do see is that it helps to shape the direction it comes from. Here we have a guy who was intensely involved in the formation of the early church in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And he has seen then the work of God, sort of the burning flame it's sometimes called of Christianity, growing from almost nothing um, all over. And so he writes a gospel that's going to act as a spark that can quickly be sent out and read and understood. And so the way that this is unique from the other gospels is that it's shorter this is the shortest gospel. Um, it contains much fewer teachings of Jesus and much more kind of actions. It also tells the story in a very condensed way. Uh, a few of the commentaries that I read this week referred to it, this as terse. Um, and I wouldn't use that term uh, partially because I don't know what it means. But also, um, because that sounds very negative, um, I would actually say that Mark uses brevity. He doesn't use any more words than are needed. He packs quite a bit in um, uh, with what he says. And so this makes Mark the perfect starting point for anyone who is engaging with Christianity for the first time. And it makes this the gospel um, that is easiest to move from culture to culture. Um, and so this actually, when I study this, it reminded me um, of my uncle um, who does some writing uh, uh, for other countries. So he uh, worked for an international seminary. Uh, international seminary meaning that they served a lot of different countries, so any content that they put out had to go out in a lot of different languages. Um, so any of the content that they put out um, had to be produced so that it could be easily translated. Now, before my uncle started working there, he had actually um, written a book on the Trinity, um, and before uh, getting it into all these other languages, the first thing that he had to do was rewrite his book in a translatable form. And he actually sent this out to us, like a page from his book and then a page from what it looked like when he rewrote it. And you basically have to take out any unnecessary details, any cultural references, and any compound sentences, which means everything becomes very, I don't know, terse. Um, but it also makes it much easier to translate from one language to another. And so this is so part of what we see in Mark. 
Both because of its content, its length, and its writing style, it's the book of the Bible that, is, um, that many translating agencies use to kind of begin their translation. It's the first book that they translate to kind of study the language and understand it before any of the other ones. And it's believed then that the Gospel of Mark is the most translated book in the world. It's the book that is in the most other languages. Um, yeah. And so as we read this, we're going to see this directness but we're also going to engage with it as the seed that is meant to quickly take root and begin um, the work of growth. This is meant to sort of get this information out, to introduce you to Jesus, so that the work of God can begin in you. And so to honor this quickness, what we're going to do is not only look at the first verse today, we're actually going to look at the first three stories that Mark tells. Um, they're very short, they're very quick, um, and this is sort of the way that he, he introduces through story. I'll show you what I mean. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 2, says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, so Mark's gospel does not begin with the birth of Jesus, right? The rest of the, the gospels, you have a whole um, you know, Christmas story. Um, uh, his gospel is going to be mission-focused, uh, with 40% of it covering the final week of Jesus' life. And so he opens up by, by right, right in mission. He opens up by introducing us to John the Baptist um, and making it clear that John is the messenger that had been foretold. And he references two pa passages here, um, and it stirs up quite a few more, but we're going to look at two. Um, he says that he's quoting Isaiah, but a chunk of this is actually from uh, Malachi chapter 3, which says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, now Malachi is the last book, uh, 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 kind of the last word from God through a prophet before the time of silence. Um, and so, so this is kind of this last proclamation of God saying this is what's coming uh, before they don't hear from God for a period of time. Uh, and the last verses of Malachi say this, they say, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God is saying, Remember the law of Moses, and I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's something coming, something great, um, and, and it's going to be led in by um, this Elijah-like prophet. Uh, Mark then uses a, a passage from Isaiah to sort of further fill this out. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, Isaiah 40 um, is meant to be a comfort for the people of God, which is interesting because it's in the middle of a book that's a, a lot of judgment. Uh, but it begins with the words, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. 
And so in the midst of all these warnings about judgment, Isaiah is there to remind the people that God is a merciful rescuer. And the second half of chapter 40 um, just is the description of God's power and might and the promise that this power is aimed towards his people. This idea that, that, that God is magnificent, um, but, but he is for you. And so when you feel overpowered and oppressed, turn to him. Rather than looking for military leaders or authoritarians, right? This is kind of where the, a lot of the first century stuff had gone. He said, he said, don't look to your salvation on this earth. Come to me. I will give you comfort. In Isaiah 40, 29, he, he tells us that unlike human power which, which holds its authority over us, the coming king is going to empower. It says he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so what Mark is doing by sort of bringing all this forward um, is saying that, that John is not just going to come before Jesus comes, but he's going to prepare the way for the rescuer. Right After 400 years of silence, there will come a prophet who is like Elijah, who talks about repentance and forgiveness like Moses did. And so John's purpose is not just to rile the people up. He's not sort of a pep rally before Jesus. He's not the opener for the concert. His job is to push past all of the distortions that have infiltrated the idea of who God is, to get back to the heart of what God has revealed about himself. Because the Old Testament is a story about how God created a world that rejected and sinned against him. And this sin infiltrated the world and has created a break in the relationship between God and his people. And even though God was dishonored and defamed in this, he has continually made a way for the sins of his people to be forgiven and rescued. He calls a nation to himself. He gives them the law. He provides them with the sacrifices and means of cleansing, as we saw in our reading of the law today. All of this is so that his people can recognize their need for him as he brings them back to himself. And so John's message, it's only one sentence here, but John's message actually summarizes all of this. It tells us John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a, there's a lot in there. In order for that to make sense, you have to understand what sin is. The need for forgiveness. And that it is God who is going to provide the rescue through purification. Now the reason why baptism is brought in here instead of just sort of John doing sacrifices is to make clear that something new is here. Right, this is still the same God, still working out the same plan, but he's going to do it in a new way, a way that brings about the fullness of what then sorry, bring about fullness that had not been there before. Colossians and Hebrews talk about this. It talks about the Old Testament ceremonies as a shadow. Um, then they say, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? Those are all there and they point to what is coming, but the substance is Christ. And so while John is here to remind the people of the general structure of their relationship to God, sort of to reframe the Old Testament narrative, he's also here to move things forward. And he describes this forward movement as he talks about the one who is coming whose, whose sandals I am not fit to tie. He says there's going to be a shift from baptizing with water to a baptism of the Spirit. And so the way that all of this is written not only introduces John as the one who prepares the way, right, but Mark uses John to prepare the reader for the coming Messiah. He uses this section to basically give us a, just a 
quick shot to say the one who is about to come is what this entire story is about. And so Mark is setting the stage here while also moving the story forward, and that's basically what we're going to see over and over again. He makes it clear that this is the continuation of God's story, but it's also the beginning of something new. And as God works through John, his chosen messenger, the table is set for God to speak once again to his people. But this time he will not be speaking through prophets or shadows. He will be speaking in the person of Jesus Christ. I've always loved how the author of Hebrews describes this um, in the very opening of the book of Hebrews. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. In Mark, we've just seen that movement um, from, from God speaking through prophets to now God is going to speak through Jesus Christ. And so John is here to be the link between how God has worked and how he's about to work. John comes in the form of Elijah, um, the prophet out of the wilderness. He reinforces the law of Moses and the need for atonement. And he's here to tell us that something new and better is here. And because we're in Mark, we don't have to wait very long for Jesus to appear. Um, It was only a couple words later. In verse 9, it tells us this. It says, in those those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So the baptism of Jesus, um, which is a little bit confusing... Um, it was always confusing to me anyway, because if there's, if there's ever a person who did not need to be baptized, it's Jesus, right? And you don't necessarily need to purify something that's already clean. So I always used to read this and be like, what exactly is happening here? Um, it didn't make sense to me until I realized that baptism doesn't actually do the work of cleansing us, which I think we probably all know, but we don't know, um, right? God is the one who cleanses us. And he has chosen a means to do that, but the actual act of baptism isn't what does it. So John's baptism is, is again, it's, it's God's sign and seal on his people. And as we've already said, this baptism is a declaration that something had changed, that something new was coming. And so I'd say the baptism of Jesus was the way that God was going to identify and put his seal on this new work. And this idea of passing through the waters is a common theme within the Bible, and so um, it makes sense that God would use this as his description. Right? And if you go back to the Old Testament, the passing through water was the symbol of God's deliverance. Uh, we see it in the story of Noah, as Noah's family passes through the flood in order to uh, reestablish the covenant with God. Uh, we see the people of Israel pass through the Red Sea when they leave Egypt. Uh, the waters are parted. They pass through on dry land. Uh, that is God's deliverance um, of them. He brings them to Sinai then where he establishes his covenant with them. And then when you get to the other side of the wilderness, and this is the, one of those stories that's not as well known, right? God parts another body of water. Um, when they get to the other side of the wilderness, God parts um, the Jordan River. In Joshua 4.21, it tells us this story. It says... Um, Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. As they do that, uh, God tells them to set up stones. So they go across and they pick up stones as they pass through the Jordan River and they set up a memorial. Um, And as they set up that memorial, God tells them what that memorial is for. That's what's in Joshua 4. 
says, he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry, land, on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us all until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, I bring up this story um, because that's where, that's where Jesus is baptized, right? Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River, in the same body of water that that's taking place. And so the same water that the people of Israel passed through, uh, where God's uh, miraculous work uh, rescued them, um, where they were to set these stones up to remember the mighty hand of the Lord, um, this is where Jesus' ministry begins. And his baptism then becomes a new miraculous moment. A new moment to sort of set up a memorial, um, not a physical one, but to set up a moment to remember. And the miracle is that in his baptism, we see the three parts of the Trinity together to mark this moment. And so we see the Father speaks, giving his authority to Jesus. We see the Spirit descend to him, equipping Jesus with the power to accomplish his task. And we see Jesus willingly stepping into ministry, following the Father's decree and the Spirit's leading. And so having been affirmed by the Father and filled with the Spirit, Jesus is now ready to move forward in ministry. As I said, Mark is like, all right, go. Um, and the first thing that he does in his ministry is he follows the Spirit into the wilderness. This is what it says in verse 12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels uh, were ministering to him. Now, once again, if you read the other Gospels, this is a very truncated version of this story. Um, it says that Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Um, the, this temptation works as a clear statement of Jesus' humanity. It's a reminder to us that he can be tempted to sin. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus um, um, has come to do something. He has come to accomplish something, which is to have victory over Satan, sin, and death. And in order to have this victory, Jesus must reject temptation. He must stay pure so that he can offer himself as the lamb led to slaughter. This is what Mark wants us to see here. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the king who will rule. But he will have victory through suffering. And so the section that we looked at today is a great reminder to us. Um, or I should say it's a great introduction to the gospel, this gospel. Because this section is actually laid out in a similar way to the rest of the book. The first half of the book of Mark is focused on Jesus the Messiah. It's about showing us who he is in his power and greatness. And the second half of it is focused on the suffering servant. And so in these first 13 verses, we see how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the Messiah. We see that he was affirmed as the one sent by God and filled with the Spirit. We see that the path that he would walk to achieve victory would be through suffering. We see that the messianic king and the suffering servant are not like two parts of Jesus' character. Instead, we see that God's plan brings about victory through what appears weak and what will appear like a loss. Our God made himself low and faced the struggle so that our sins could be forgiven forever. And we come here every week to celebrate that. 
Every time we come together, we come together and we share in communion. Where we take the bread and the cup, the body and blood of Jesus, and we proclaim victory while admitting that he was killed. We say he is sharing his victory with us as we remember what he had to do to secure it. And so as you come to the table today, come to the Messiah, remembering all that he had to give up and sacrifice so that you could even come to his table and marvel at the grace and mercy of our God who makes a way for a people who have done nothing but rebel and sin against him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you have done, but but particularly we thank you for the work of Jesus. Um, As we proclaim your victory, as we declare the events that took place, we also acknowledge that they they didn't have to happen. You didn't have to care about us. You didn't have to show us grace. You didn't have to give up so much on our behalf. And so as we look at all that you have done, when we look at all that you have suffered in order to be able to offer us salvation, it is an overwhelming thing. And I pray that as we study uh, this book, as we look at Jesus and we learn directly from him, God, I pray that you would use it uh, to shape us um, to be people who are just full of gratitude, full of amazement that the God of the universe would care this much about us. Just be with us. Be with us as a people as we live this life which proclaims many other gospels. Help us to stand firm and to hold fast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.